Would you open up in your Bibles with me uh, to 1 Peter chapter 2? We're going to continue today with 1 Peter. We'll be in verses 4 through 10 today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I haven't mentioned this yet, um, but 1 Peter can actually be divided into three sections. Uh, you'll notice at the beginning of verse 11, the word beloved, that's a section marker. And so we're coming to the end of the first section in the book of 1 Peter. The way that Peter ends this section is by asking the why question. He's already explained our goal, that is to get to heaven, to, be, to have heaven uh, be present on earth. But now he turns to explain the purpose what this is all for. So let's pray. We'll come to the scriptures together. The Holy Spirit, would you change our hearts? Would you enlighten our hearts? Would you fill us this morning as we come before your word? Would you change us by it? Would you sanctify us by it? And through all things, would you bring glory to God? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This morning... The girls sang for us, Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, Of course, we also sang that song last week as we reflected on the holiness of God in 1 Peter. Uh, But the arrangement that they sang was by a popular contemporary uh, Christian artist. She's done several old hymns like that over the years. Um, What you may not know, however, is that that artist is no longer a Christian. A couple years ago, she came out and renounced uh, Christianity entirely and has completely left the faith. Now, That doesn't discount the good that she's done. Um, Plenty of hymn writers, plenty of preachers throughout the the centuries have um, turned away and come back to the faith and and struggled through these things. And we still benefit from the way that God used them even in spite of that. But as I was listening to that song earlier this week, I I came across a video of that same artist who's now renounced the faith. She's an atheist now. I came across a video of that same artist singing Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence. You may know that song. It first came out in 1964. So if you haven't heard it by now, I'm going to spoil it for you. But it's, it's a song about hopelessness and futility. It was written in response to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 
And this is the song she was singing. Just to give you a, a sample, here's the lyrics of the fourth, fourth verse. Fools, said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. That my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. You see, we need to be able to answer this fundamental question. What are people for? This artist who's, who's turned away from the faith and turned away from God. She used to write songs like Holy, Holy, Holy. And she used to understand what people were for. People are for the praise of God. As our catechism says, man she fend is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But now that she's turned away, she doesn't have that answer. Futility is her answer. But if we believe that man she fend is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, we have to answer the question, how exactly we do that? What is that broad purpose? That's kind of a big thing, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What does that mean in the lives of regular Christians? Now, Peter has already spoken several times about how God has chosen a people. He sets them apart for holiness so that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Peter's already explained all that. But he hasn't given a full-orbed answer to the question yet. Why? What are you chosen for? God doesn't need us for his glory. God doesn't need us to achieve his purposes. But for some reason, he uses us. Well, after discussing suffering, after discussing the gospel, Peter finally turns to explain, why me, why us, what are we for? And his answer is that God has chosen his people for sacrifice, for honor, and for proclamation. God has chosen his people for sacrifice, for honor, and for proclamation. So first, let's see what God has chosen his people for. God has chosen his people for sacrifice. Let's begin in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament, there, there are two main images of what the church is like. The, the, probably the more common one is the first image of a body, and related to that, a bride. We are the body of Christ. But here, Peter uses this second image, that we are a house. Now, there's lots of parallels between those two images. Christ is the head of the body, and he's the cornerstone, or as we could even put it, we could call him the headstone of the church. But this is, this is a powerful metaphor for who we are. Now, house is an interesting um, metaphor. On the one hand... We're described like a physical house. We're described as stones. But we're also described as a household. We're living stones being built up into a temple, but we're also a holy priesthood. We're living stones. Both were present in the Old Testament, this sanctuary and this priesthood, but they were fundamentally separate. So in the Old Testament, you had a temple, you had a priesthood. But Peter's doing something interesting. He's taking the temple... And the priesthood, and he's bringing them together. The sanctuary in the Old Testament was where the priest made sacrifices. Now, in the New Testament, the priesthood is the sanctuary. And God dwells in her continually 
as she offers acceptable sacrifices up to him. That's what God is doing with us. We are the living stones. We are the temple of God. He sets us apart to be true worshipers. What does that mean? What is an acceptable sacrifice? Well, consider Cain and Abel. You have the story of two brothers who both offered sacrifices to God. But only Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Why is that? Well, Genesis 4 is somewhat vague on this. But God does tell Cain this. He says, God speaking to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, some people point out that Cain offered grain and Abel offered animals, but I think that misses the point. If you actually look at Leviticus, there's all sorts of provisions for, for giving grain offerings. What Cain is offering are the first fruits that he has to God. So I, I don't think it's the externals that are the issue. It's something internal. Hebrews 11 reminds us that Abel demonstrated faith in God, but Cain did not. The problem, the difference between Abel, the true worshiper, and Cain, the false worshiper, was a matter of the heart. This has immediate implications for the way we worship today. Our Westminster Convention of Faith, citing scripture, tells us that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and limited by his revealed will. Now, there, there are several dimensions to that, but Peter reveals the main thing. The main thing that makes our sacrifices acceptable. It's through Jesus Christ. On the basis of his work, on the basis of his righteousness, Jesus Christ is the living stone, the cornerstone on which the church finds its foundation. He is the sure rock who offers righteousness for our justification and also teaches us faithful response. See, we can do all the right things externally, but if we want to offer acceptable sacrifices to God, we have to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So what do we do in worship? We actually offer the fulfillment of all these Old Testament sacrifices. As Jesus said, the, the old system, the old law, is not nullified because it was abolished, as if God changed his mind about the way he was doing things. Instead, the old law was fulfilled. All of these Levitical sacrifices have, have some direct analog in Christian worship. For example, Jesus Christ fulfills the sin offering. He is our once-for-all sin offering who continually makes intercession for us before God. We ourselves, as Paul says, are living sacrifices represented by the whole burnt offering in the Old Covenant. And the primary place that we do these things, that we offer acceptable sacrifices, is in public worship on the Lord's Day. That's why this is so important. If, if there's nothing else we do as a church, this is the thing we have to do. We have to gather together and worship. Too many people think that the church's mission is something else. You know, lots of people talk about social justice today. Um, lots of people talk about community. Others talk about ethical living, about morality, about Jesus, our, our great moral example. Even better, these people I would agree with on some level, some people talk about missions and our need to get the, the gospel out to the world. Now, all of these things are good and right given certain circumstances. But they need to be understood in context of our first mission. God's glory. Justice, community, those are good. But they must be based on true worship of God, who defines justice, who creates a people. 
Morality is good, but it's only good because God desires pure worshipers. Evangelism and missions are good, but the point of evangelism is to bring sinners into the living presence of God. As John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Everything we do must be oriented to and flow from the right and true worship of God to offer acceptable sacrifice to him. That's why we exist. As Paul says in Romans 11, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So we are chosen to offer acceptable sacrifice. We are chosen for sacrifice. Second, we are chosen for honor. Let's continue at verse 6. It says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. So Peter continues by setting up this comparison between two kinds of people. On the one hand, there, there are those who receive honor, and on the other, there are those who receive shame. Now, we've already talked about the fundamental difference between Cain and Abel. One had faith in God, and the other did not. But what did they have in common? The answer is that they were both standing before the same God. It's not God that changed. It's not God that's different. It's, it's them. This is similar to uh, Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. One of, one of the great paradoxes of Christianity is that exaltation comes through humiliation. Every single one of us, believer, unbeliever, is confronted with this reality when we hear about the death and resurrection of Christ. It, it, it goes against everything that this world tells us things should be. To believe in Christ requires a total reconfiguration of our minds and our hearts. To understand that glory comes through death. You mean your God died? That's, that's a big deal. Does a God like that actually deserve our faith? But this is what Peter and Paul mean when they talk about stumbling. To stumble is to encounter the truth of the gospel. To encounter a crucified Lord. And to say, there's no way I can believe in that God. But God says, those people are destined for shame. You know, so honor, everyone agrees that, that good is worthy of honor. That's what honor means, right? Something that, something that is honorable is something that is good. But what is good? That's, that's something we have to answer the question for. Philosophers throughout the ages have given all sorts of answers. Immanuel Kant, big deal in modern philosophy, says what is practical is good. We do practical things, right? So we're more concerned about utility. We're more concerned about how things work. But Jesus calls us to a number of things that are entirely unpractical. Things like forgiveness. Things like generosity. John Rawls, another philosopher who made a huge impact in our world, 
You may not know these names, but they, I, I promise they, they affect your thinking. John Rawls says that fairness is good. But was Jesus' death fair? Is our salvation fair? We deserve damnation, not mercy. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul tells us that good is from God. As Christians, as believers in the one true God, we define goodness on the basis of him. Not on practicality, not on fairness. We believe that good is good because good is from God. God is perfectly good and abounding in steadfast love. And so we need to turn to him if we want honor. If we want true honor and true hope. The highest good that deserves the highest honor is to align yourself with the crucified Lord. It's not what this world says honor is. So the question for you is, does your definition of honor line up with God's definition? Are you in agreement with the Bible, with God's law? Or are you more concerned with what's practical? Are you more concerned with what's fair? The cross of Christ is not practical and it's not fair. But it is good. And if we believe in the power of his cross to free us from sin, then we will be honored with him. Otherwise, we're destined for shame. So look to what is good, look to what is honorable, and rejoice in the honor that you can have with Jesus Christ. We're chosen for honor. Third, we're chosen for proclamation. Chosen for proclamation. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here Peter gives us a list of descriptors. He says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now all of this language is drawn out of the law. Most notably, it comes out of Exodus 19, which is the formal covenant inauguration of the people of Israel. You see, throughout the, the Old Testament, we see God calling people to do his will. Over and over, the same theme occurs. God's people are supposed to be a means of blessing the earth. Israel is, to call, is called to bless the nations. But now Peter is taking that same covenant language that belongs to Abraham and Moses, and he's applying it to all Christians, Jew and Gentile. His, his point is twofold. First, he, he uses racial and ethnic terms to describe Christians. So when we come to Christ, we're, we're drawn from across these lines, across these boundaries. And as Paul says, the gospel breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Second, as God's creating a new people, he's also calling them to serve as priests for the world. A priest is an intermediary between God and man. A priest is someone who stands in their way. A priest receives the prayers of others and brings them before God. And more importantly, he passes on the word of God to the people. So as Christians, we're in a unique position of serving as God's priests. When a tragedy strikes and when the world is in need of prayer, we're the only ones who can actually offer it. We're the only ones that pray to a true God. The prayers of unbelievers are ineffective because they're not done through the name of Jesus Christ. 
More importantly, we're the only ones with the gospel. We're the only ones with abiding hope. And so our call as a community, as a corporate body, is to be priests. Now why? It's because we were once there. We didn't always belong to this new race of people. We didn't always have access to God's mercy. We didn't always belong to him. No, we're, we're Christians. You and I are Christians because someone took up the mantle of this priestly service. You're a Christian because someone prayed for you. You're a Christian because someone shared the gospel with you. It's not something you did on your own. It's not something that God... Now, God uses people. Like God, God can, uh, can make this happen without people, but he uses people. He uses means. You and I are Christians because of someone else. Now, I, I don't want to lay unnecessary burdens on you. Um, this is a corporate reality. For example, some Christians are called to street preaching, but most aren't. Probably most of you aren't. Some Christians are called to foreign missions, but most aren't. We all have different gifts. We all have different proclivities. As, as someone once said, there's no Christian personality type. But as a body of believers, as a body of believers locally, denominationally, universally, we should take care that the work of proclamation is happening. We should be concerned that the gospel is being proclaimed. How does that work out practically? Well, to start simply, do you pray for the work of the gospel individually and in your family? Do you pray for missions? Do you pray for evangelism? At the next level, are you engaged in proclamation of the gospel where God has called you? Fathers, do you teach your wife and children the word? By the way, that, that's fathers of adult children too. Mothers, is your home a place where the marvelous light of the gospel is present? Do you adorn yourself, as we'll talk about in, in a couple of weeks, do you adorn yourself with a gentle and quiet spirit for the sake of the gospel? Some of you are engaged at various levels with government work. In your work there, you may not be preaching yourself, but you do have a duty to make clear the path for the gospel work in our community. Elders, you have a similar role in the church. Children, new Christians, your role is simple. It's to come to a knowledge of the truth, to be built up, to be prepared for this work. You see, we, we all have different callings. We all have different purposes, but, but that's on purpose. Each person fulfills the vocations that God has called him to, and the church as a body is able to do her work. When, everything is, when everyone's doing their part, the church as a body is, is able to pursue her end. Most Christians will never stand behind a pulpit. But, but without people like you fulfilling regular, everyday Christian obligations, the church struggles to fulfill her call to proclaim the gospel. God has called us to proclamation. He has called us to share his name. And we have to join together as a body to answer that call. We're chosen for proclamation. So who will you be? That's the question that we all have to answer. Will you be one who stumbles? Will you reject the cross? Will you turn to worldly wisdom and fleshly desires? Or will you offer acceptable sacrifices to God? Will you receive the honor due to those who believe? Will you proclaim the excellencies of Christ? To take the first path, the path of shame, is to pursue a life of futility. You may have some earthly pleasure, but, but you want to have eternal joy. So come find your purpose in Jesus Christ. Come to glorify and enjoy God.
And in so doing, you will find that you are doing the very thing you were made to do. This is your call this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.